Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, offer a close reading of the text, and then judge the actions of the characters at the saga thing. Mm. Well, John, the thing men and thing women have spoken to us. It was a heated <laughs> race between Njal and Ail sagas, but uh, when push came to shove, somehow, Njal won the day. And now that uh, school is out, I think we've got some time to work on this. Yeah, uh, we do. And it's going to be time for a while. <laughs> uh, we're going to need a lot of episodes to get through this one. Uh, and I'm not going to lie. I'm a little frightened. Well, who wouldn't be? So am I. So uh, uh, this this is the longest and most sprawling and probably the most mm-hmm. complex of all the family sagas. So thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> now, only uh, one or two others even come close to this one. and But this is the undisputed king of all Icelandic sagas. Yeah, it's all of that. Uh, and it's more. This is also the most critically studied saga, with the possible exception of Eil's saga. Uh, there are a lot of sagas out there, like Rekdala Saga or Havard of Isafjord Saga, where we're free to tackle the story really any old way we want, mm-hmm. since it's comparatively untouched by scholarly hands. But Njal's Saga? No, no. Yeah. yeah, no matter which way we turn in this one, someone's already mm-hmm. been there, and they've already made a case for one reading or another. Uh, mm-hmm. But wait, we, we need to mm-hmm. at least explain fundamentally what this saga is before we get into all of that stuff. Uh, John, why don't okay. you explain the essential story of Njal's Saga for us? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is the story of a great lawyer named Njal Thorgerson. Wait, I, I got to stop you already. Uh, okay. I just, I, just to be Why? clear, we need this in about a hundred words or less. Can you do that? Oh, <laughs> okay. Njal saga. <clears throat> this is a sweeping epic centered on southern Iceland, but drawing in the history of the entire island from the mid-10th century to the early 11th. It's built around a great lawyer, Njal Thorgerson, his friend Gunnar, and the feuds that encompass their extended families set against a time of great change for Icelandic society. The saga builds from one sprawling feud to another until the entire power structure of the island is rattled by the destruction of one of Iceland's greatest families, a massacre with consequences that are felt throughout northern Europe in the years that follow. How's that? That was remarkably under 100 words by my count. <laughs> so really, really well done. But uh, I think you, you, you left out a lot of important stuff there. You you said a hundred words. Well, come on now. Would two hundred have really helped? There's just too much to cover here. We'll get to it all. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a little daunting, um, which is why we're going to be breaking our discussion up into a marathon of episodes. We're not entirely sure how many, but my money's on eight or nine total. Hopefully, we'll get it all done this summer. But uh, hmm. I really hope so. There's just a ton mm-hmm. to say. Even aside from our own reactions, there's no shortage of critical opinion to seek out for this one. Just so much. Right. And and just to make things interesting, about the only thing everyone agrees on is that this is a great saga. Well, then, let's start there, John. We could be really rebellious, <laughs> make a name for ourselves by saying, it's a terrible saga. Don't waste your time on this drivel. And then we're done. <laughs> Are you done? <laughs> uh, yeah, we'd make a name for ourselves, all right? The name would be Mud. Yeah, I'd be done if uh, I said the that. The challenge is that everyone is at pains to wax rhapsodic on the genius of this saga and its author. How many different ways can we say that everyone loves Njal? Uh, well, let's just do a, a, a quick <laughs> tour of um, some responses, shall we? Uh, let's start mm-hmm. with uh, Magnus Magnusson, who calls it the mightiest of all the Icelandic sagas. One of the finest mm-hmm. achievements of medieval literature by an author who is one of the world's great storytellers. Oh, see? That's nice. But I know you pulled that from the Penguin introduction. I did. So I will counterpunch with Robert Cook's more recent edition where he calls the saga a prose masterpiece 
and ranks it alongside the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Song of Roland. That is pretty serious company. And it is. we could trot out a dozen other equally effusive ways of saying that this is a pretty darn good saga. Uh, there are also some ideas out there that are no less complimentary, but are somewhat different in nuance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Theodore M. Anderson begins by agreeing that, by common opinion, Njal's saga occupies a transcendent place in the Icelandic tradition. But he then goes on to argue that the saga is in large part actually a satire of the saga genre. Yeah, that's still a compliment. And I, I, mm-hmm. I really hope we get around to talking about that satire angle at some point. Yep. Uh, now, now it wouldn't be a saga thing intro if we didn't mention our old friend Jonas Christensen, <laughs> who we can usually count on to throw a little cold water on our enthusiasm for any saga. Uh, oh, this should be good. He says that Njal is worth a fistful of other sagas. So, oh wow! Yeah, I was counting on you, Jonas, and you let me down. Yeah, so pretty much everyone, even the very critical Jonas <laughs> Christensen, is on board with this being among the best, if not the best, of the sagas. Yeah, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of disagreement about the specifics of Njal's saga. Mm-hmm. In fact, in many cases, there are multiple arguments in progress over different aspects of the same aspects of the sagas. So whatever we say or do runs the risk of entering us into any of a dozen or half a dozen critical imbroglios. Why are you doing that? Do what? I'm just offering some sense of the scope of what we're trying to do here. No, no, no. I, why would you use the word imbroglio when when you could just say feud or conflict? <laughs> critical feud. See, that sounds a lot better. Ah, well, I, because we're going to be saying feud a lot over the course <laughs> of this saga's many, many episodes. I don't want to wear the word out. Yeah, there, there's something to that. I mean, this saga goes from one massive set piece to another, and any one of its major feuds is the equal of most other entire sagas. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. not uncommon to find critics who argue that Njal's saga is actually multiple stories loosely stitched together. Well, as we discovered when we were sorting out how to divide this up into multiple episodes, it does have a clear rhythm to its narrative arcs. Right, but really, only a couple of the major arcs even feature Njal in a significant role, so I don't know. That's true, uh, and we'll be talking about that quite a lot. Now, the only way we're ever going to get started on this thing is to limit ourselves to a brief discussion of some aspect of the saga as a short intro to each episode. Uh, and in fact, this is probably a good place to provide a short explanation of this structural issue. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, can I get us started? Would you mind? Be my guest. All right. So the major question that's hung around the discussion of Njal's saga is whether it's even a saga singular at all. Or whether we mm. should more accurately think of it as two or more sagas interlaced together into one grand narrative. Yeah, that's, that's nicely said. I'm glad you said two or more. Yeah, uh, the first and most well-known way of breaking down the saga is between the first section, which is largely concerned with the career of an unparalleled warrior named Gunnar Hamundersen, and the second section, uh, which centers on the life uh, and family of Gunnar's closest friend and a famous lawyer, uh, someone named Njal Thorgerson. You probably haven't heard of him. Right, that guy. Uh, now, this is something that a number of readers have pushed for. Uh, Christensen, to take that example again, argues that the Gunnar's saga section is more firmly grounded historically than the Njal saga part, mm. suggesting that the author has greater written authority for the first half of the saga and is relying on a kind of cobbled-together historical memory of events for the second half. It's an interesting point, and it's something we've seen before, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's hardly alone in thinking that. Older scholarship often made that same distinction. So uh, someone like Einar Svensson, he says something similar in an introduction to Njal's saga from the mid-20th century. Right. And the problem is that as soon as you start dividing the saga up, there are ways to keep breaking it up. Mm-hmm. If the stories of Gunnar and Njal represent two saga narratives, why not go to three? Well, th- there are people who do just that. You know, Lars Lonroth, for example 
points out that the section that we're going to be talking about today is semi-independent from the rest of the saga, and it certainly feels that way. It incorporates mm-hmm. a lot of material that also informs Laxdala's saga, actually. Right. Well, we'll get back to that later. Um, and there's another way of breaking up the action. Uh, Stefan Einerson has suggested thinking of Njal's saga as a mighty trilogy, mm. with Gunnar, Njal, and Njal's son-in-law, Kari Salmundersen, as the subjects of three narrative arcs. Okay, but of course that means you can even argue for four separate stories. The introductory yes. story, the Gunnar story, the Njal story, and the Kari story, and some people do argue for that. Right. Uh, it's true, but let's stop there before it gets out of control. What about five? I don't want us to end up with a six? kind of Mandelbrot set of sagas building out into infinity. <laughs> well, what about the other side of the argument? What do other people say? What, that it's a single saga? Yeah. Um, well, most of the arguments against the idea of multiple sagas being brought together under one heading come down to the number of plot elements and symbolism and parallelism and other isms woven through the saga. Uh, there's so much cohesion throughout the story that it's hard to think that it isn't ultimately being brought together in a single narrative plan. Well, the most recent English language edition of the sagas has an introduction by Robert Cook, like you said mm-hmm. before. And Cook has a section of his introduction titled The Two Parts of the Saga – uh, but he ends his introduction by arguing that the saga is a masterful work, a work, singular. I think a lot of the scholars who come down on the one saga, one story side of things tend to quote Albert Boeth, uh, who wrote that when the author wrote the first line of Njal's saga, he had the last line already in his mind. Oh, what a nice quote. Mm. It's a little study, though. You could you could feel <laughs> you know him sitting there at his desk thinking that one out. You get the impression he sat around for a while thinking uh-huh. that one up. Yeah, you kind of do. Uh, and it's undoubtedly a bit of an overstatement in any case. Well, you know, we, we've talked about the existence of trends and fads in scholarship before, and it's something that I always like thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. And this is actually a good example. Boeth wrote about the saga in the late 19th century. And then you have people trying to parse out the saga's elements, even trying to think about it as different texts woven together. Mm-hmm. Now there's been a generation of scholars who generally come back to Boeth's position. So there's a, a peaks yeah. and valleys in these theories. No, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, and even that's, I think, a pendulum swing that may be ripe for a reversal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Constance Hyatt wrote a quarter century ago that current scholarship, meaning in her time at that point, Anyal was currently was focused on arguing for the wholeness of the text to the extent of treating every single piece of the saga as intrinsically necessary to the whole, even if no one was entirely sure why it was there. Well, actually, a lot of scholarship from the last decade or two seems to have left this question behind, at least for the present, which is odd. Yeah, yeah, that's no, true. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in other ways of investigating the saga. Mm-hmm. Gender studies, legal history, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, things that benefit from the saga being considered as a whole. But, I, you know, I don't know that we're done with the composition question for good. I mean, saga studies isn't a huge mm-hmm. field, um, and I can see this thing kind of popping up again. All it takes yeah. is one or two big names to restart a controversy, and there you go. Absolutely. So, you know, not that we're big names in the field or even... Oh, how dare you. Or even medium-sized names in the field, but... Uh, <laughs> Little names. But uh, where where do you come down on this, John? Uh, we're breaking this up into component sections, and it does break up pretty easily into smaller sections, so... Well, that's true, but that's merely... Uh, that's just us bowing to the reality of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think a single 14-hour podcast on this saga would probably not be downloaded a great deal. We could sell it to Audible. Um, well, fair enough. Uh, ultimately, I think I side with the idea that it's a single work of art. Mm. Uh, it may draw from more than one tradition, but there's a lot of narrative interweaving that suggests that someone was thinking about the ways that each story element throughout the saga would intersect with everything else. Uh, and as you said, you know, drawing from multiple sources is something that saga authors do all the time. Yeah. I might reject the phrasing, 
But I, I, I agree with Both's sentiment. The text reads as a full-length story. Carol Clover uh, has argued that Njal Saga operates on a firmly designed system of coherence. Look at you. Which seems like a reasonable enough foundation for understanding the story to me. Such a scholar sweeping in quotes and references oh, to well, you know. You know, I have a little list of them here I like to use. <laughs> the, you know, the natural ebb and flow of the narrative is pretty typical of the saga genre. Um, we, we always find that there are pretty good logical places to break up our discussion whenever we want to spend more than one episode on a single saga, which is always. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but don't get off topic. What about you? Where do you come Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you and, and, and probably most mm-hmm. other modern scholars who are going to consider a question like this. I think we're, we're all much more informed about how these things are constructed um, and we're not just – uh, guessing. All just following the fads. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, I, so I have no problem believing that components of the saga may have at one point existed individually, whether orally or in written form, but this isn't simply mm-hmm. the work of a haphazard compiler kind of knitting these things together. There was a lot of care put into the construction of the saga and the episodes that move the narrative forward. So, I, you know, like some of the critics we've quoted here, I consider Njal Saga to be one of the great achievements of Western literature, not just medieval literature, but all of Western literature. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Right. Uh, well, whichever way you lean, uh, the question is ultimately connected to questions about whether the sagas were you know, oral creations later written down or were largely the creation of the writers who put them to parchment. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I don't think we want to go swimming in that particular ocean of critical history right now. <laughs> no, 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 we do not. <laughs> um, no, but it's important to note that there are other more intricate questions of structure underlying this metastructure question that we're bringing up now. <laughs> You know, I, I'm just imagining my parents listening to this, and they do listen to the podcast sometimes. And I, I don't think they would be entirely comfortable with your phrasing there. But the the whole structure, meta structure huh. thing, mom and dad, mm. it, it might sound far more intimidating than it actually is. So, but John, I, I think I agree with you. Well, that's gratifying. Uh, it'd be nicer if you hadn't hedged that with you. Think you well, there are a lot of ways to break down the narrative matrix of this saga, John. I'm not committing mm-hmm. until I know which one you're talking about. So what are you talking about? <laughs> no, that's exactly my point, that there is a matrix of narrative links of this saga. It's a nice word. I'm glad you used that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got characters being introduced over 100 chapters before they become relevant to the story. We've got parallels among figures, legal settlements, and narrative devices, all of these echoing throughout yeah. the text. Uh, I'll try to highlight a few of them as we go along, but no single run-through can cover them yes, all. Yes, I, I, com- I completely agree. And as we said at the outset, this is a remarkable work of literary art, and whether its original composition owes much to oral traditions, its written form is undoubtedly the work of a great Saga artist. It's it's, it's actually a little mm-hmm. intimidating to try to explain it without feeling like we're cheating a lot of those complexities. Yeah, I'm feeling yeah. that too. Uh, look, I know we tell you people to read these sagas for yourselves all the time, but... This time I must insist, uh, you need to read this. Yeah, and unlike some of the other works we've discussed on the podcast, this one is readily available and cheap. True. There's quite possibly a, a, a real copy, <laughs> a hard copy, available in your nearest big box store. Uh, and, and there are multiple editions translated into dozens of languages available online or in print. You can mm-hmm. get this saga. Just try. Right. <laughs> so we'll continue to take up some of the details of the scholarly stuff as we go along. Uh, for right now, though, let's uh, go ahead and get this avalanche started before we get cold feet and cover a nice little fodder instead. Okay, well, I, I'm ready when you are. O- only because this saga is so long, I'm not going to offer a summary of the whole thing here. That would be way too much and it would be oh, so- yeah. full podcast length. Yeah, no, that's reasonable. Um, I assume you'll just offer an overview of each part as we get to it? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. All right. Deep breath. Push the button, Andy. Okay, but you know there's still no button, right? It doesn't exist. 
marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. That's right. This first episode of our epic summer saga is all about connubial bliss, or at least how not to achieve it. We find ourselves in the south of Iceland, where the noble and very available Hrut is in need of a bride. Enter the lovely Un, daughter of famed lawyer Morth Fiddle. Unfortunately for Un, no one consulted her about the marriage. As you'll see, Hrut's relationship with Un is a complicated one, and to make matters worse, the blushing bride will have to contend with a curse placed on Hrut by the Norwegian queen mother Gunnhild. What does Hrut do to earn the ire of the Norwegian queen, and can he overcome the swelling tension in his marriage before it is too late? But don't let the little tale of Hrut and Un fool you. This first episode is really the story of Hrut's niece, the incomparable and dynamic Holgerd Hoskold's daughter. She's beautiful, charming, and seductive. But she's got thieves' eyes, and that always means trouble. We'll follow Holger through several attempts at marriage. One thing her husbands learn quickly, that's right, husbands, is that when Holger's foster father Thjostov comes for a visit, it's time to run, and run fast. And if we learn anything in this first part of our summer saga, it's that Holgerth is stubborn and proud and perfectly capable of shaping relationships to her desires. Do either of her husbands have the wits about them to survive their marriage with their lives? Or will Holgerth get the better of them both? Find out as Saga Thing begins the epic journey into... Njal's Saga! And that's just the prologue stuff. Pretty much, yeah. See, that sounds like a whole saga all by itself. Yeah, it could have been a warrior poet saga or something like that. Um, but, you know, we knew this was going to be a monster. So let's not shilly-shally here. Oh, jeez. Let's get started. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. You know I'm not done yet. There's still the matter of the Hravenkel measurement. Oh, that's right. Yeah, this should be a good one because Njal Saga is the longest of the sagas. So mm-hmm. this is going to be a high watermark for Hravenkel's. Yes, it is. Uh, would you care to hazard a guess about the official number? Oh, God. No, it's it's huge. <laughs> can you can you give me, like, a hint? No. Uh, but I'll give you some leeway. <laughs> oh, come on. You get credit if you get within one Hravenkel of the correct answer. All right. All right. Okay, so I think that the longest saga we've done so far was Gretir, right? Uh, yep, that's right. Okay. Uh, that one was, like, 6.5 or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. But uh, I, I feel like Njal isn't quite two Gretirs long. Maybe, like, one and a half Gretirs. Oh, dear Lord. Uh, are you warming up for some Andy math? I, I am. I'm going to be measuring... I'm going to be transferring my Gretirs as a measurement <laughs> into Hroffenkills, and that's going to give me the answer. <clears throat> but I got it. Don't worry. I'm going to do some rounding, and it's going to make it easy for me. So Careful. You measure say- things in Gretirs, and, uh, they, get, they get smaller when it's cold out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's right. Poor Gret here. Uh, so uh, let's just say Gret here is seven Hravenkels. That's what I'm going to go mm-hmm. with um, from 6.5 to 7. Just to give me a little bit more length to uh, play with. Right, Gret here? Hmm? Wow. So uh, Njal Saga, if Gret here is seven, and I'm going to add a couple there, uh, we're going to go with Njal Saga is around 11 Hravenkels or oh. something close to that. How'd I do? Huh. I, I, I like your response. That, Sounds that's good. That's a damn good guess. It's a 10.94. Ah. That's a very good really guess. 
Thank um, you, Gretir. And it's an undeniably p- impressive length. Yes, it is. <laughs> the, that whole conversation is ruined by the Gretir joke. Terribly <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. But anyway, it's all the more reason. If this is truly like 11 or 10.9 or whatever you said, mm-hmm. uh, we need to get going. Let's stop okay. stalling. Let's get Let's to go. work. Let's go. Part one. Thief size and Norwegian queens. So, as we said, there's an almost inexhaustible amount of stuff to talk about in the saga. In fact, the section we're covering in this first episode, even though it's full of good stuff, doesn't even have Njal in it. And True. as the intro said, it's about two half-brothers named Hrut Herjofsson and Hoskold Dalakolsson. And mm-hmm. also Hoskold's daughter, Holgerth Longlegs. Right. Now, the brothers have the same mother, Thorder Thorsten's daughter. And right away we'll be dealing with Icelandic bluebloods here, because Hoskold and Hrut are descended from a number of important saga figures, many of whom we've seen in the podcast before. Uh, Aud the Deep-Minded, Olaf the White, Kettle Flatnose, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, Ragnar Lothbrok, mm-hmm. all of them direct ancestors on their mother's side. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a rock-solid pedigree right there. It really is. Uh, of course, a couple of those people are semi-legendary, but they're still impressive. Mm-hmm. Now, these brothers are important elsewhere in the sagas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got an important role to play in Lockstyle Saga, which is an excellent saga, and I can't believe it didn't get more votes. <laughs> well, there's always next summer. Well, next summer's going to be Ale Saga, you know that. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, as we said, they're going to be at the center of the first part of Njal Saga, which is what we're going to cover today. Right. Now, at the start of the story, uh, Hrut is unmarried, but Hoskold already has four children. Three sons named Thorlik, Olaf, and Bard, and a daughter named Holgerth. Right. Holgerth is only a child when the saga starts, but she already embodies the stereotypical standards of literary beauty. Mm-hmm. She's tall and beautiful with long, silky hair. In other words, she's easy on the eyes, which mm-hmm. is apparently all that matters anymore. I mean, what? whatever happened to good birthing hips and strong hands, John? What? <laughs> uh, anyway, Hoskold's very proud of her beauty, and when his brother Hrut is visiting, Hoskold introduces them by bragging about Holger's stunning good looks. Mm. But Hrut responds quietly to his brother, The girl's beautiful, and many will suffer for that. But I don't know how thieves' eyes have come into our family. And just like that, we're off and running. First mm-hmm. chapter of the saga, and we've already got an iconic line. You know, what do thieves' eyes look like, anyway? Well, you have to assume they're shifty. Maybe, maybe, or beady. I, I think thieves' eyes would be beady, like a shrimp's eyes. <laughs> this, is a, this is actually a great example of how wide a net you can cast in reading this saga. Uh, did you know there's a young adult novel called Thief Eyes about Holgerth? <laughs> Wait a minute, a young adult novel? Does it have any uh, vampires in it? <laughs> no. Uh, it's written by Johnny Lee Simner, and it sounds interesting. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't read it. But if you, oh, wait, then you don't know if they're vampires or not. That's a fair point, but I'm pretty sure there aren't. Uh, ah, but if you like be. young adult books about magical spells that vaguely tie in with the Icelandic sagas, then give the book a try and let us know what you think. See, see, we're already off track. That no, happened no, 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 so no, fast. just a quick side note. Nothing major. No, no, I, I, I'm curious. How did you discover this little novel? Is this where you hang out at the library? <laughs> and I popped up on WorldCat when I was researching. Sure it did. <laughs> so l- let's get back to the brothers. Uh-huh. Um, now, there's obviously a bit of coldness between them uh, for a while after Hrook drops this thieves' eyes line. Well, there would be. Yeah, I mean, he I, he's basically accusing Hoskold of being a cuckold, which is a pretty serious accusation. Oh, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, but it's still something. Oh, what? If you read the line, it is, but I, I, I don't think debatable. so. Uh, mm. But either way, it's still something of a conversation stopper, uh, especially when Hoskold's been preening himself on his daughter. 
and his daughter's looks. But you know, but they get over it, and sometime later, while they're attending mm-hmm. the all thing, Halskold starts pushing his brother to get married. Ah, yes. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single Icelandic farmer in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. I, I, I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> Holgerth Bennett or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just, I, uh, it's true. I don't even know how to recover from that. <laughs> but it, it's true that this is a classic opening gambit for a story. And well, uh, Jane Austen wasn't alone in right, on, on right. that. Right, uh, Well, it speaks to something about the popularity of Njal Saga in English-speaking countries. That its plot really is, in some ways, more novel-like in its structure than many other sagas. And, and this isn't going to take as long as an Austen novel to resolve, but mm-hmm. uh, I do like that you mentioned novels here. Uh, I remember the first time I ever read Njal Saga thinking that I had discovered the point of origin for Western novels. Right. Um, it's one of the many reasons I started looking into the sagas more seriously, actually. Right. I think I've mentioned before that Milan Kundera at one point says that if uh, if the Icelandic sagas had been written in a language that more people were familiar with, we would assume that they were the origin or the uh, the, anticipa- the anticipation of the modern European novel. Yeah, yeah, it's uncanny uh, how close they are. Yeah. But we were talking about Hurt getting married. That's right. So uh, Hoskold is so eager for his brother to marry that he's already found a bride for him, which is convenient. Mm-hmm. She's Un, daughter of Morth Fiddle. Morth Fiddle? Fiddle? Uh, she's Fiddle. Un, daughter of Morth Fiddle, uh, a renowned lawyer and fiddle player and chieftain <laughs> from Ragnaveller. Uh, and the marriage is arranged without any real difficulties yeah. for some pretty interesting reasons. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting that already in this saga, we've got this balance between warriors and lawyers. Hmm. Uh, Moore Fiddle is famous mainly for his legal mind, not for his fighting ability. Uh, Hoskold and Hrut, meanwhile, are more warriorly men. Uh, warriorly? Yeah. Uh, both of these are venues for masculine power to be displayed, but they're very different types of power. True, and any listener who has already read Nell Saga will know that that's going to be a theme the whole way through this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were wrapping up the marriage arrangement. Look, at see how easily we get off track? I know. We're going to have to be much more disciplined <laughs> if we're going to get through this saga. Well, you've introduced most of the digression so far. I, I didn't say anything about uh, young adult novels, but it's neither <laughs> here nor there. So let's get back to the betrothal of Hrut and Un. Mm-hmm. It may seem like a good arrangement, but as Hrut and Hoskold head back from the all thing, the brothers meet Hrut's paternal uncle, Olzer, a ship's captain. Now, Olzer has come to tell them that Hrut's half-brother, Avend, has died in Norway mm. and that Hrut is the heir to Avend's property, which is a great thing. Mm-hmm. But he's got to hurry to Norway if he wants to claim it. Right. So that's going to be a bit of a disruption of Hrut's wedding plans. Oh, it's not a major one. We've seen this kind of thing before. Mm-hmm. Hoskold stocks a ship for Hrut while Hrut rides back to speak with Morth Fiddle to arrange a three-year engagement with Un. This is another one of those three-year engagements. Andy, oh, how yeah. long were you engaged for before you got married? I, I I don't know, really, honestly. <laughs> you don't know? It's kind of an odd answer. No, you know, I I started dating my wife in high school, so it's hard to say when a formal engagement actually started. Aww. We, we kind of always knew we were meant for each other. That's so Ooh. sweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, we didn't get married until we finished college, so I guess we were engaged for a while. Mm, it's very romantic. Um, I was only engaged yeah. for less than a year. Three years seems like a really long time to me. Uh, but I guess, you know, neither one of us had to accommodate the problems of North Sea travel in winter. You have to leave time for that. True. And you don't just pop across the sea and claim your inheritance in a Norwegian court. It takes time. So mm-hmm. Hrut's got work ahead of him. But he manages to get a ship together before the sailing season ends and makes his way quickly to Norway and to the court of Harold Greycloak. Right. Now, this is one of those handy things about the sagas. Uh, they often refer to specifics of Norwegian reigns, allowing us to orient ourselves historically. In this case, Harold Greycloak is the grandson of Harold Fairhair, 
and he ruled part or all of Norway for about 16 years, from 954 to 970. Mm-hmm. But Hrut visits him in an eastern stronghold, and Harald Greycloak only took control over the eastern part of Norway in the second half of his reign. Right, so we're somewhere in the 960s. Exactly. Uh, and Harald is ruling, but his mother, Gunhild, is the real power in Norway. In fact, she learns of Hrut's arrival before her son, and through a messenger, she coaches Hrut on what to do and say to become a member of Grey Cloak's household. Yes, and it's worth noting that Harold knows what his mother's up to. Well, she's not being subtle. No, not, not at all. That's not her game. <laughs> uh, when, when Hrut asks to join Harold's champions, she immediately chimes in with, It seems to me that this man is offering you great honor. To which her son asks, uh, Is he a clever man? Both clever and adventurous, hmm? Uh, well, it looks to me as if my mother wants you to have the position. Very nice. Bit of a Freudian slip there, though, since he also directs his mother to host Hrut for a couple of weeks. And by host, we mean... Oh, I think you know what I mean. Uh, Gunnild's got a reputation for cruelty, beauty, and generosity in Icelandic literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Jenny Jawkins notes, she was feared for her magic, her cunning, and her sexual insatiability. <gasps> But Hrut's engaged to Un, he can't. I know, but that doesn't seem to bother him. Has he even met Un yet? No, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, and in any case, Gunnild's not an easy woman to say no to. Uh, also, he doesn't even try to say no. Well, yeah. uh, Instead, he spends two weeks drinking and sleeping with Gunnild and generally availing himself of her hospitality. Her hospitality. Yes, he's hurting like a wild bull. Oh, that's terrible, but brilliant. <laughs> but so is Hrut's behavior. I mean, for that matter, it's pretty clear that this isn't acceptable behavior, even for the Queen Mother, since she has to threaten to kill her servants to keep them quiet. Uh, as she says, you won't lose anything but your lives if you spread word of me and Hrut. And no one blabs, so... Well, no one after, would. <laughs> no, you don't want to lose your life. So after two weeks of hedonism, uh, Hrut returns to Harold's court and is accepted into the household. Well, it's not like Harold can really say no to his mom. Um, he even says that the two-week waiting period is only to preserve the dignity of my position and the customs of this land. But that when Hrut returns in two weeks, he'll be accepted. So he's already admitting that he's been overruled. This is right. just about saving face, right? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Um, this is all part of a developing theme in the early chapters of this saga. Uh, the women of Njal saga are not going to be as anonymous as women in a lot of the sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are going to be pretty evil. Some are admirable. But they definitely shaped the narrative right from the beginning. So, Hrutz made himself comfortable, but wasn't he here to claim his inheritance? What, what's oh, that well, part of the story? That. Uh, he doesn't seem real bothered about that, actually. No. Uh, an entire winter goes by without it being brought up again. Uh, but in the spring, Hrutz learns that a man named Sauti has claimed Avon's property and has sailed south to Denmark. Uh. Yeah, so Hrutz gets two ships from Harald to help him chase Sauti, and another two ships from Gunhild, who seems to regard him as a special project. Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. I prefer the term sugar mama. She's his sugar mama. Well, that's a, that's a less nice way of putting it, but yes. <laughs> uh, in any case, he sets out with five ships in the company of Ulf the Unwashed, the leader of Harold's <laughs> secret police. Now, you know, Ulf's an interesting character. He's the mm-hmm. leader of, of some men who, who, I guess, spy on Harold's own men for him. Mm-hmm. And they take care of killing anyone who's plotting against the king. So, you know, you said secret police. That's actually a pretty accurate term. And the, the, I find, like, in this section of the saga, the underhanded mm-hmm. nature of the whole situation in Norway, it's a very Icelandic way of thinking about the way kings exercise power. 
Right. Even Harold's own subjects aren't safe from him. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, the king's hand is everywhere, which definitely isn't cool to Icelanders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So hold on a second. Are are we just going to ignore a nickname like Ulf the Unwashed? Are are we going soft (laughs) here? Well, I mean, I recommend staying upwind if possible. But otherwise, yeah, we're moving on. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, well, even with the help of Stinky Ulf uh, and Hrut's (laughs) Uncle Ozer, Hrut can't find Soti. Mm -hmm. Instead, as he's sailing around... He stumbles onto eight ships led by Otley, who is the son of Earl Arnvid of Gotland. Remember him? Eight. No, because we didn't talk about him. Right. No, he hasn't come up yet. <laughs> eight is a lot of ships. It is a lot of ships, especially if their captain considers himself an enemy of King Harold, which Otley does. So once he learns that Hrut and company are Harold's men, he attacks by throwing a spear, which kills a man on Hrut's ship. I wonder if he used a, a throwing string for that. There you go. So the the two sides then crash into each other, and the battle is on. Right. Now, just in case anyone's tuning into Saga Thing for the first time, I think it's important to state that crash into each other is not poetic license. Naval battles between Scandinavians in this time were largely conducted by hand-to-hand fighting, mm-hmm. which meant running the ships into one another and then trying to kill everyone on the other ship. Right. And now in this case, Hurt's ships are outnumbered. Nearly two to one, although that's mm-hmm. not really good math. Uh, so there, I mean, it's five to eight. That's not really two to one. It's almost two to one. Four to eight would be two to one. Still, you know, if you're so saying he's like one it, ship up from two to one. If you're saying it was like eighteen to forty, then you know I'm good with that. Oh, but for God's sake. <laughs> still, it's a difference of two. So uh, I guess you're right. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the Hurt's ships are on the defensive. Otley's men are having a hard time climbing onto Hurt's ships because of the strong defense that the Norwegians are putting up. Hrut kills Adli's prowlman Asolf, but mm-hmm. several of Hrut's men are killed in the process, and Ulf the Unwashed dies from a spear through his torso. Alas, Ulf, we hardly knew ye, and ye terrible body odor. <laughs> Technically, Ulf is Norwegian companion, but I'm not sure we can count that when the entire fleet around him is Norwegian, too. Ah, I think it counts. He's a Norwegian <laughs> companion. Uh, you know, f- and finally, Atli leaps onto Hrut's ship and starts killing men all around him. So he's definitely a formidable opponent. Ozer mm-hmm. tries to attack him, but is forced to retreat as other men stab at him. Hrut then leaps into the fray. Otley gets in the first blow and splits Hrut's shield in half. This throws him off balance, and things are looking bad for Hrut, but this is where the chaos of these naval battles comes into play. Right. No one has a clear field to fight in, and while Hrut is trying to regain his equilibrium, Otley is hit in the hand by a thrown rock and loses his grip on his sword. Talk about a poor stroke of luck. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and while he's trying to recover, Hrut catches Otley's sword and spins with it, chopping off Otley's leg. Nice. So now who's off balance? <laughs> and that's when Hrut deals Otley his death blow. Ta-da! That's mm. great. But it's a little convenient. Which part? All of it. As if I All don't of know. it, really. <laughs> uh, Otley's an impressive fighter, and he's got Hrut dead to rights. That rock flying out of nowhere strains credulity. Yeah, really? I mean, have you ever been in a naval battle like this one? No. Have you? No, not that often, no. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I imagine a lot of things flying around that might hit a hand or maybe worse. So mm-hmm. I, I don't really have a problem with that part as being believable. Though I, I get your point. It's it's a little also, convenient. Also, you brushed past it, but Ulf the Unwashed had actually just shouted a joke about Hrut's indebtedness to Queen Gunhild because, before he was killed. Oh, is this where Ulf says... You strike a blow hard, Hrut. You owe a lot to Gunnhild. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, as we're going to see, the author of this saga credits Gunnhild with magical powers, not Mm -hmm. least of which is her ability to place charms and curses on people. And now, in quick succession, we have Ulf dying after making reference to Hrut's special relationship with the queen, 
and then her pet Icelander being protected by a piece of random luck in in battle. Yeah, I'm not sure I believe that she's a magical force in the battle, but I, I'm willing to accept the possibility that a charm is protecting Hrut. Mm-hmm. And we've certainly seen women with the power to place charms on their lovers and sons before to keep them safe in battle. But, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, how does this how does this curse or a Gunhild's charm cause Ulf to catch a spear with his belly? See, now remember Gunhild's threat to her servants. You won't lose anything but your lives if you spread word of me and Hrut. <laughs> it could be that she wasn't speaking figuratively there. Is she powerful enough to place a killing curse on anyone who speaks of her sexual activity? Oh, that's, yeah, right. But, you know, that, that is a, a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Well, I mean, Ursula Dronka seems to agree with me that it's a possibility. Ah, uh, or you agree with her. Well, chicken and the egg. Ah. Uh, either way, Gunild's secret and her lover are safe. And the fight's over. Otley's death breaks the spirit of his men. Hrut's forces capture two of these ships, and Hrut looks good doing it. But it's not a perfect day. Why not? I mean, he's alive, isn't he? And he mm-hmm. started the day with five ships, and now he's got seven. Well, there you go. That's good man. Yeah. Uh, but he was supposed to be hunting Sohi the Norwegian, and he's completely lost the trail now. Ah, yes. But he's got more ships now, and mm-hmm. and since they were on the open sea, John, they, there really wasn't a trail to follow. But, you know, <laughs> yes, I, yes. I know what you mean. <laughs> All the same, there's some good news for Hrut. Yeah. Uh, it's always good news when you're a hunter and your prey is an idiot. Uh, has doubled back on Hrut, so he's nowhere near where Hrut's looking for him. Uh, but he decides to stop back at Harald's court on his way out of the area. It's not a good idea. No, which of course means he runs right back into Gunhild's crosshairs. And that's all she wrote for Solti. Mm-hmm. Gunhild waits until he's getting ready to leave and then sends one of her other sons to catch him and hang him on the shore. Uh-huh. She takes control of Solti's ships herself and keeps Hrut's property until he returns in the fall. Right. And when Hrut does return, they share out the property between them, and he decides to spend another winter enjoying Harald's royal court and Gunhild's hospitality. Of course he does. Everything's coming up roses for Hrut so far. So far. Part 2. Hrut's got a big problem. Okay, so Hrut's still relaxing in Harald's court. He's been out of Iceland now for, like, how long? Two years? Something like that? Yeah, about that, that, yeah. Uh, So he's still well within his three-year time limit for returning to complete that marriage contract with Un, the daughter of Morith Fiddle. Well, he is, but we've seen how these little excursions to Norway can foil even the most devoted lovers in getting back to their betrothed. Mm -hmm. And Hrut isn't too concerned about getting home anyway. I mean, he's treating Norway (laughs) like, like a Vegas vacation. He's getting rich, he's shacking up with the Queen Mother... And generally living a life of indolent luxury. Mm. Um, he's not acting like a man with a fiancé waiting for him back home. Now, I've never been to Vegas. Is there a lot of sexually aggressive royalty hanging around? <laughs> well, it's no Versailles, but uh, oh. you know, in, in Norway, it's still good to be the king. Or the king's mother. And there's plenty of sloppy seconds available for the lover of the king's mother. Oh, that's gross. Um, yes. But I think this is something that occasionally surfaces in these descriptions of Norwegian court life. There's a self-indulgent quality to life in Norway. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes the saga authors don't really bring it up at all, but when they do, it can be tricky to sort out whether an Icelandic audience was meant to be, like, jealous of this life or morally repulsed by it. I think morally repulsed, and that's, I guess, you know, to be fair, it's not an either-or. Some authors Mm -hmm. are fully aware of the possibility that an audience can be enticed by the things they recognize as morally questionable. Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, Not to mention that getting rich... Isn't necessarily a moral question. Well, we're Christians uh, here, right? So. Well, 
Like a lot of Icelanders in these stories, Hrut gains renown and material wealth through his exploits in service to a Norwegian lord. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean we need to think well of him. So this is the famous neutrality of the sagas at mm-hmm. work, I think. Uh, we're not told what to think of Hrut, so we've got to build our own understanding of his character from his actions and, and from our own moral universe. Yes, and we have to do it quickly because Hrut's planning to head back to Iceland to get married. Okay, so the quick version of this is that Hrut isn't even married yet, and you have to remember that even infidelity within marriage wasn't necessarily treated as a cut-and-dried evil in the sagas. Mm -hmm. Um, As we're going to see later, even Njal Thorgerson, who's an amazing and upstanding guy, he even has uh, an illegitimate son. So, you know, you can get around if you want to. Uh, But that said, Hrut's not going to get away scot-free with his philandering. True. Definitely not. So, uh, Hrut takes his leave of Gunild. But when he lies to her about his reasons for returning to Iceland, she says, I placed this spell on you. You will not have any sexual pleasure with the woman you plan to marry in Iceland, although you'll be able to enjoy yourself with other women. Okay. How does he sleep with a woman who has a voice like that? I don't quite... (laughs) I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) You can at least be slightly more sultry, but cruel, but not... All right. You want me to try it again? It's more of a... You're, no, right. no, you're fine. It, it just <laughs> seems like more of a crone, and I don't see her getting it on with Rut. But uh, anyway, it's it's a strange curse, and it's quite evil. I place this spell on you. <laughs> That's not any better. <laughs> it's, it's a cruel curse, and it's evil either way. Yeah, it is. And it's not even as if it was needed. I mean, Hrut mm. and Morth Fiddle already set this up as an unhappy marriage before Hrut ever left Iceland, so... Right. Uh, you know? Do you want to explain that? Well, yeah, they they didn't consult the bride-to-be about the marriage at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, though that happens to, in a lot of the sagas. Uh, we talked about it a few times during the warrior poet sagas, for example. But but this one, this is one of the sagas where the idea of consent is really being pushed into the foreground, which is appropriate for when it was written. Mm-hmm. I mean, consent theory starts to be a big issue starting in the late 13th century for real. But uh, questions about a woman's proper role in betrothal had been around at least since Eric, the Archbishop of Norway, wrote a letter to the Icelandic bishops asking them to encourage their countrymen to be a little bit more mindful of Christian law in the late 12th century. Right. Now, you've done your work on this subject, so I'm going to trust you here. A wise move, my friend. Trust me. <laughs> uh, in, in that same letter, Archbishop Eric of Norway explained that a woman must consent to the marriage meth with her own yes word. And the Icelandic bishop Thorlak seems to have taken up the cause because consent theory becomes a significant part of Skalholt's growing conflict with the secular elite in the late 12th century. So you're suggesting that the author of Njal's saga is not only aware of this issue, he's actually invested in it. Absolutely, yes. I mean, just look at the saga. You can almost argue mm-hmm. that any marriage in Njal's saga where the wife isn't consulted beforehand is automatically doomed. Uh-huh. So that kind of suggests that asking a woman her opinion about who she's going to marry matters just a little bit. Well, I mean, that's practically the theme of this first part of the saga. Right, and we're going to discuss three marriages in this episode, two of which are going to end unhappily. And both of mm-hmm. them fall apart partly because the bride isn't consulted about the match. That's consent well, theory. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, the third marriage isn't necessarily going to end up happily, but we'll get to that. Sure. For for now, the point is that Un isn't at all happy to be marrying Hrod, and that's before their marriage is cursed by a Norwegian witch queen. Ooh, and now I'm adding Norwegian witch queen to my list of metal band names. Well, you know, frankly, you know, John, I wouldn't be surprised if that's already been used by a quartet of really hot, pale-skinned, rocking Scandinavian women, probably with black hair and tattoos. Okay, ignoring that. Um, so, 
Hrut returns to Iceland, and the marriage goes ahead as scheduled, but Un isn't bothering to hide her sadness about it. She kind of mopes about in the reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hrut gives her the authority over his house and all domestic matters that are her due as his wife, but she doesn't really want the job. And now there's that curse hanging over them as well, because as we're told, there was little intimacy between her and Hrut. Mm-hmm. And that goes on for an entire year, which is not comfortable. We've mentioned before that it's actually comparatively easy for either a man or a woman to divorce a spouse in medieval Iceland. But that doesn't tell the entire story. The person who wants to get divorced has to have somewhere to go. And in a woman's case, there's also a lot of pressure not to divorce her husband without her family's approval, since divorces tend to create lawsuits or even violence in their wake. Mm -hmm. So a legal right to divorce doesn't mean that divorce is necessarily an easy or practical option. And that's often the case. And mm-hmm. in this situation, Un's in a difficult spot because she knows her father approved this match for her. So when she attends the All Thing the following year, she isn't sure what to do. Mm-hmm. And when her father points out that she's looking unhappy, she starts crying. Which is understandable. I mean, she's really in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't appear that Hrut is actually cruel to her, but she just doesn't like the guy. And don't forget that they aren't really intimate. So the relationship mm-hmm. has a cold edge to it from the start. Even if she's reluctant and cool herself, she maintains her proper role, I think because she knows her father has honor at stake in having made this marriage arrangement. Uh Um, But Morth is actually a caring father, even if he is willing to marry his daughter off without consulting her. Yeah. Uh, And now his only child is weeping in misery. Uh Uh, Understandably, Morth wants answers. Right. So Morth confronts Hrut and Hoskold, but they're honestly perplexed too they don't know what's going on well i mean are they is Shrut really unaware that his wife's ha- unhappy M- maybe not because he doesn't know of any reason to be called on the carpet by his father-in-law i mean mm-hmm. Un hasn't made any actual charges against Shrut, and when Shrut's neighbors are brought in and questioned they all testify that Un has been treated well given authority over all their affairs and no one's aware of any abuse or neglect so it seems like everything's in order right so Un's not happy but that's not really covered by the law. Right, which is one of the reasons consent is so important in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. There are plenty of court cases, especially in the southern diocese of Skullholt, where the church defends women like Un by saying, listen, they were never married in the first place because consent wasn't given. Right. But uh, you know, the situation for Un is what it is, and ultimately she has to return home with Hrut. All right. And by the way, for people who aren't aware, this is why even in a modern wedding ceremony – Right. The officiant has to ask each participant whether or not they will take so-and-so as their legally married spouse. You have to say, yes, I will, or yes, I do. For exactly that reason, you are issuing consent. We could get into a whole Princess Bride here thing, but I don't— We could, but we we, shan't. We don't need to do that. Everyone knows. Uh, But so now, um, Hrut knows that Un's unhappy. Un has made Hrut unhappy, so no one's happy. Well, you know, that's really not clear. Uh, Hrut actually goes out of his way to try to improve the situation mm-hmm. and things are better between them that summer um, but over the course of the winter and spring Un becomes unhappy again and at the following year's thing she sneaks off to meet with her father again and this time she's decided to level with her father in fairly graphic <laughs> terms now what does that mean? it means we're in for some rather awkward father-daughter conversation about sex oh Okay. Uh, Well, it's probably safe to say that most people encountering this saga for the first time didn't see that coming. No, no, I wouldn't think so. But, uh, you know, Morth stupidly pushes his daughter to explain the problem specifically. And uh, she finally... Spoken like a father of of teenage daughters. (laughs) Uh, Don't talk about that. She she finally confesses 
that whenever they try to have sex, Hrut's penis swells up to the point that sex is impossible. <laughs> but uh, I'll try to get through this. Um, but as soon as he moves away from her again, he is as normal physically as, as any other man. Yikes. Uh, so this, we have to assume, is the effect of Gunild's curse. <laughs> well, I hope so. Otherwise, Hrut needs to see a doctor. I mean, maybe he caught something from the Queen Mother. <laughs> uh, hey, Doc, uh, have you ever seen anything like this before? Oh, yes. We see this all the time. Uh, looks like you've been to Norway recently. Oh, I have. How did you know? Don't worry, Hrut. It's just a case of Gunhild's curse. Uh, have you tried sleeping with other women? <laughs> All right, then. That's disturbing. Um, actually, it's been suggested by Ursula Dronka that this uh, curse is sort of a joke by the author. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hrut's been cursed with an inability to perform sexually, but only with Un. And the suggestion that his manhood and his virility are otherwise unaffected might actually be a case or, of... Or even enhanced... Oh, okay, well, yes. Uh, but that might be a reference to the fact that in other sources, Hrut is actually pretty remarkable for the number of children he produces with his subsequent wives. Hmm. book credits him with 20 children. Wow. And Lakstala Saga ups that number to 26. That's a lot. That's He's a very busy boy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this kind of inversion of the expected effect of the curse, it's actually made him super virile, but mm-hmm. unable to have sex with his wife. Right. So it's actually fairly diabolical. Well, what I find interesting is that in terms of the saga narrative, both Un and Morth react to Hrut's oversized member as if they know it's more than a physical problem. Mm. Uh, Morth, for instance, Morth launches right into explaining the procedure for declaring a divorce to his daughter. Well, one of the recurring themes of Njal's saga is that the very best lawyers have a certain amount of precognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, Njal routinely has an almost supernatural ability to see the outcome of a course of action. And before Njal rises to prominence, the most prominent lawyer in Iceland is Morth Fiddle. So mm-hmm. it's possible he senses something once his daughter explains the situation or realizes that her situation isn't going to improve. Mm. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> but we should say that Morth's plan doesn't seem as if he sees any immediate cause for concern. Mm-hmm. Un returns home and lives with Hrut for another nine months before taking an opportunity to declare herself divorced while Hrut's away from the farm. Well, even Un says that Hrut hasn't been unpleasant toward her in any way he can control, so there's mm-hmm. no real danger there. Right. Uh, and since she now has her father's blessing to end the marriage when the time comes, Un knows the formula for divorce, but just as importantly, she has somewhere to go. Right. Now, the rumor mill is forever churning in medieval Iceland. The news is all over town that Un left Hrut. And that her father, the eminent lawyer, publicly declared the couple divorced. Mm-hmm. But Hrut acts as if nothing's happened and allows an entire year to pass without even contacting Un or Morth. Well, I mean, really, what could he say? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of an awkward situation all around. I'm getting better. I'm, the, <laughs> I'm sorry it scared you. <laughs> but uh, the, that lack of contact makes things even more awkward at the following summer's all thing, where mm-hmm. Morth and Hrut avoid one another for quite some time, understandably... Yes. Uh, well, the problem Especially here, at the urinal. Well, oh, <laughs> the problem here is that these two are at something of an impasse, honor-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really don't have a solution in hand that would allow them both to come off looking good. And so they're each waiting for the other to make a conciliatory move. And this is one of the tricky parts about the game of honor. Uh, there are ways to gain honor through conceding a point, but that takes a special combination of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we'll see that happen in the next episode of this podcast between Njal and his friend Gunnar. Right, exactly. But mm-hmm. but in this case, both Morth and Hrut see more advantage in standing his ground. And when that's the case, conciliation isn't going to happen. 
Right. So after some days go by in this embarrassing stalemate, Morth finally announces a suit against Root for Un's dowry, along with a fine because Root hasn't returned the dowry upon dissolution of the marriage. Well, but since Root knows he can't hope to win a legal case against Morth, the super lawyer, he decides to go for option B. He challenges Morth to a duel for the money. How is that option B? And that's wrong. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, why is that an option at all? It's a real problem in the system, and it's a challenge that a man Morth's age can't really answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morth's actually quite elderly. And since he doesn't have a son who can take up the duel on his behalf, Morth has to back down and give up the legal case. I'm shaking my head here. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's also important to say that this isn't necessarily seen as a brilliant stroke on Fritz's part. In fact, I don't like no. the guy now. No, it's it's kind of a last resort. I mean, any idiot can fight a duel, uh, but it's effective. And to a point it is, but both men lose a certain amount of standing over this. More mm-hmm. is shown to be a vulnerable to physical stress, which potentially undermines his future Threats. as a lawyer. But Hrut is bullying an old man in a case in which Hrut probably bears the greater share of the wrong. Right. He may get to say keep that. the money, but at a certain cost to his public honor. Definitely. Uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind during this saga. Uh, the game of honor isn't a zero-sum thing with a winner and a loser in every conflict. Mm-hmm. It's possible for both parties involved to win honor if they're able to work out an admirable settlement. And it's also possible, like in this case, for both parties to come away looking bad. Yeah, definitely. It's a theme that we're going to be returning to later in the story. Right, eventually. Uh, but for now, we should probably move hey, on Hey, to... wait, 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 wait. What? There, there's actually an incident following this that underlines the public judgment against Root's behavior. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about that quickly. Okay. So, Root and his brother Holskold are traveling and spend a night at a friend's house. A group of children are playing in the house and they decide to play men at the all thing, which is... <laughs> you want to help me with this, John? Uh, sure. Um, hang on. Yeah, I've got the right page already as it happens. So, uh-huh. one of the boys says, I'll be Morth and summon you to give up your wife for not having sex with her. <laughs> And another boy responds, and and I'll I'll be Hrut, and and I I say that you must forfeit all property claims if you don't dare fight with me. Wow, it's a little embarrassing. Uh, yeah, and notice the phrasing there. Uh, Give up your wife for not having sex with her. It, it's not at all clear that the rumor mill has passed on the nuance that Hrut's been cursed with a magically oversized manhood. Yeah. Sometimes it amazes me that we talk about this stuff for a living. I mean, this is really, it's a little bit out there. It's true. Uh, you know what I mean, though. Uh, it sounds more like the story going around is that Hrut is sexually inadequate in some way. It's almost embarrassing when the neighborhood kids start joking about your impotence. Hmm. John, how, how do you deal with that? <laughs> That's cute. Remind me to kill you later. Uh, and it doesn't help that uh, most of the household thinks this is hilarious. And it is. Uh-huh. Uh, and that suggests that the lawsuit has become a kind of common topic of conversation among adults as well as children. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, Hrut and Hoskell don't think it's all that funny. I can't imagine why. No. But they, but they don't. Hrut then whacks the kid playing Morth with a stick. He hits him so hard that the kid starts bleeding, and Hoskold orders the kids to leave the house. Jesus. Uh, I, mean, I can see him being annoyed, but beating somebody else's kid bloody? Bad form, Hrut. Uh, well, in his defense, Hrut realizes he's out of line, and he does pay a settlement on the spot. He gives the kid a gold ring from his finger, mm. and the boy's pleased to be treated so seriously. And everyone there praises Hrut for his graciousness, so, I, you okay. know, it works out. But the fact remains that he beat up a kid over this. Eh, it's not him. great. 
No, it's not great at all. Uh, but it's an indication of how quickly word can spread about a person's private life and actions. The grapevine in Iceland is extremely active, despite the small population. But hey, Rick got to keep his money, so that's nice. Part 3. Holgerth's First Marriage While all these years have been passing with Hrut, his niece Holgerth has grown up, and the local lads have started to notice. But she's turned out to be kind of a difficult figure. Yeah, about the only positive things the author can say about her is that she's beautiful and has nice hair. Hmm, well, but that. she's she's also got a reputation as a hard-hearted person. Well, readers of the saga, I think, often give Holgerth credit for more complexity than that. Uh, Magnus Magnuson called her the enigmatic, dishonest, ravishing Holgerth. I like it. Uh, Lars Lonroth makes the point that people have been defending the tragic and brutally treated Holgerth against the supposed bias of the author since the 18th century, even though Lonroth himself calls her an evil, vengeful, seductive Norse prima donna. So... (laughs) Brutally treated? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, It it is interesting that no one seems to be able to resist the urge to attach extensive descriptors to Holgerth. A recent example is that Heather O'Donoghue calls Holgerth articulate, sarcastic, confident, self-possessed, and inscrutable. In a single paragraph of scholarly writing, it's pretty impressive. (laughs) So right from the outset, we can say that Holgerth is... Definitely one of the more complicated figures in this saga, or I think in any saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, inscrutable is probably a good term to keep in mind, actually. Uh, and in, in addition to all of her other qualities, presumably Hallgirth's still got those thief's eyes. True, she does. In any case, uh, there are men around who most definitely want Hallgirth for a wife, thief's eyes and all. <laughs> and the best prospect from her father's point of view is Thorvald Oswison, a wealthy farmer who owns the Bjarneyar Islands off the coast of Breithefjord. When Thorvald comes with his father to ask for Holgerth's hand, Haskell agrees to the proposal, but he makes the deal without consulting his daughter. See, now, didn't he learn anything from his brother's marriage? Well, presumably he learned not to spurn a Norwegian witch. I'm not sure that's relevant here. Well, the consent part. I mean, remember, Un ah. was already unhappy in her marriage to Hrut. Mm-hmm. This is the second marriage in a row we've seen where the bride isn't asked whether she consents to the marriage. And while that might be standard practice in the 10th century... There's a very different cultural practice in place by the time this saga is written. Right. Now, there's also the question of individual temperament. Un wasn't the most forceful personality. But Holgerth is much less quiet about her displeasure at her father's high-handedness. She tells him, You don't love me as much as you've always said, since you didn't think it was worth consulting me on this matter. Why do all women sound evil when you do them? Evil? I don't think so. That sounded evil. I think it sounded strong-minded. (laughs) <laughs> I was going well, for strong-minded we, we will let the listeners decide on that one oh. um, But Hoskold's not interested in an argument Instead he doubles down on his patriarchal privileges mm. I don't rate your arrogance high enough To let it stand in the way of my plans It's my word that counts when we disagree Not yours Which, Which frankly just shows he doesn't know his daughter very well <laughs> Well, but it's also the saga author Talking about you know the reality of the situation Right, right. But it is a, in this case, it's a direct challenge to Holgerth's right to self-determination. He's just antagonizing her. Yeah. I mean, he's technically right from the legal perspective, but anyone with kids will tell you that technical legal rights, they're not a great position to argue with them from. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and Holgerth's response is pretty much what you'd expect. You kinsmen have plenty of pride, so it's not surprising if I've inherited some of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, 
And that doesn't bode well for her marriage at all. Well, for her husband, anyway. No. Uh, and when the wedding takes place, Holgerth brings her support group. Her maternal uncle, Sven, who's a magician known for his vicious character, and her foster father, <laughs> Fjolstolf the Hebridean. Wait, he's a magician, so he, like, he's got a top hat and a rabbit. And right. He does card tricks. <laughs> right. Right. Or is he a sorcerer? He's, no, he's a well. He's a. They call him a magician in the translation that we're reading. So he helps. He makes uh, pigs disappear at festivals yes. before he goes. That's on. an illusionist. You're thinking uh, of an illusionist. I didn't know that that even existed. In the, that's hilarious. <laughs> so uh, about Theostolf, mm-hmm. he he's a bad man. In mm-hmm. fact, he's described as a classic oyafnader mother, uh, an uneven-handed man. The author tells us that Theostolf had killed many men and paid no compensation for them. And mm-hmm. if you think all the way back to episode two, where we first started, Hrofenkel yep. Fregoli was also an Oyavanadarmadar. Mm-hmm. And yet you took him for Thingman. Shocking, really. He was. Remember, he reformed himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he grew and learned to be a better chieftain. And besides, you, you, you'd you have done the same thing if you'd had a chance, admit it. And the books are closed on that, sir. <laughs> uh the point is that Theostolf is going to come live with the married couple, mm-hmm. and he's a bad person and a bad influence on Holgerth. Well, it's not like she's a great influence on herself, to be honest. I mean, this well, is a true enough. corrupt lady. Uh, we get a t- taste of the dynamic between Holgerth and her husband Thorvald right away. When Thorvald's father, Osvif, asks how the relationship is going, Thorvald replies, Well, she shows me nothing but sweetness. You can tell by the way she laughs at everything I say. It's because of the way he talks. Uh, All we've answers, her laughter doesn't seem as good to me as it does to you. Right. That's another thread we see woven through this saga, by the way. Laughter doesn't usually indicate joy or pleasure. Uh, It's more often ironic or mocking, or it's used to cover up darker emotions. Mm Mm-hmm. Laughter and smiles, one might say. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's actually an important bit of advice for anyone in this saga. Beware your enemy's laughter. Beware yeah. your enemy's smile. Uh, especially when your enemy is your own wife, yeah, and she's right. whispering things to her ser- serial killer of a foster father, and they both look at you and laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's just good <laughs> advice. Uh, and just as Oswif expects, there are signs of trouble right away. Uh, Theostolf lurks around the place, but Thorvald just ignores him. And Holgerth turns out to be a spendthrift, using up too much of the stores of food in the house. Mm-hmm. Thorvald ignores that, too, until the following spring, when Holgerth complains that the household lacks both flour and fish. Well, there's an argument here, and it ends with Thorvald striking Holgerth in the face, hard mm. enough to draw blood. Okay, now, leaving aside the obvious reasons why that's a terrible, terrible thing to do, it's also just not smart. Mm-hmm. Holgerth has a nasty temper, and she's already not happy about being attached to Thorvald. Now all she needs is someone willing to commit a cold-blooded killing. Hmm. Thjolstolf? Uh-huh. Yeah. And sure enough, Thjolstolf tracks Thorvald down to one of his islands and kills him after a brief argument. Wait, wait what? That, that was quick. Well, you know, these things aren't always complicated. It's pretty simple. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough, I guess. Uh, Thjolstolf scuttles Thorvald's ship so the other men on the island can't chase him. And with Holgerth's help, he escapes the area and hides at her uncle Sven's farm. Meanwhile, Holgerth distributes gifts to her entire household and then rides back to her father's house where she announces Thorvald's death. Yes, but meanwhile, Olsweif has learned of his father's death and rides with a group of men to hunt Thjostolf down. But remember, Svan mm-hmm. is a magician and he's got a plan to keep the pursuers away. Ah, no doubt a cunning plan. Yes, he says, pick a card, any card. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, uh, when when they get too close, he wraps a goat skin around his head. Oh, right. right. <laughs> what? You know, he, How is that better? <laughs> Maybe he should have taken out the it, cards. It's what he does. But he also mm-hmm. chants, and somehow the goat skin do-rag creates a fog <laughs> that envelops Oswif and his men and causes them to get lost. He's a mind mm-hmm. freak, one might even say. There you go. And because of that, they have to return home in frustration. Now, now at this point, we have to ask how much of this Hallgirth expected. What do you mean? Well, it seems very well planned out. She mm-hmm. brought her volatile foster father with her into her husband's house. She definitely wasn't surprised when Theostolf ran off and killed Thorvald. She was prepared to return to her father's house. Mm-hmm. She knew where to send Theostolf to keep him safe. I mean, it's, it's not hard to get the impression that Hallgirth had been planning all of this for a while. And that she might even goad Thorvald into hitting her to create the excuse she needs to put her plan into effect. Mm. No, that's a fair point. Um, that's a cunning plan. Yeah. No, she'd even made sure that Svan and Thjalstolf spent time together at the wedding feast and built up a friendship. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that she decided on all this before the wedding even took place. Yeah. Uh, but of course, she also might be legitimately reacting to the moment and just be very good at thinking on her feet. It's possible. I mean, we said this about Gretzer Asmundersen at the one point, uh, that being credited with an ability to improvise on the fly is often a sign of a saga author's approval of a character. Uh, well, either way, uh, Hallgirth's a widow already. And her in-laws are still out looking for compensation or for blood. And mm-hmm. it's not long before they come to her father's house. Ah, where Hallgirth is now living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, they're not looking for her. After all, she didn't actually kill anyone. Uh, I think we've just argued that that's debatable, but okay. Since he can't get revenge on Thjolstolf, Olsvif is looking for compensation, and mm-hmm. while Halskold is inclined to brush the request off, Hrut steps in and negotiates a settlement in which Halskold pays a full compensation for Thorvald, but without admitting to any personal responsibility for the death. Mm-hmm. And Hrut adds a gift of a beautiful cloak to the offer, flattering Olsvif. So it's all yeah. it's all good. By the way, that is one of those tiny details that just shoot right by on a first reading of Njal's saga. Yeah. But I love that this is how Hrut seals the deal on this settlement. Mm-hmm. Every time I read this saga, the depth of plotting and the intricate parallels of the story spring a few surprises on me. Uh, I won't go into the reasons yet, but that beautiful cloak as a gift above the settlement price, keep that in mind for later. I think I know what you mean, but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, you're right. That's a conversation for much later in the story. For now... Well, for now, this is one of those rare moments when everybody wins. Yeah. A settlement is made that satisfies everyone's honor and makes everyone happy. I mean, you know, everyone except Thorvald, because you know, he's <laughs> he's still dead. Right, well, true, true. Uh, but all the living people are content. They are, yes. And sometime later, Thjostolf leaves his hiding place with Svan and moves in with Holgerth at her father's place. Right, so we've essentially reverted to the status quo ante here. Everyone's back where they were, were originally. Well, everyone except... Uh, no, I, I know, I know. You know. Not the dead. dead guy, but everyone else. <laughs> and Hoskold has hopefully learned a valuable lesson about not overriding his daughter's wishes. Which is important because there's always someone out there crazy enough to marry an attractive and now quite wealthy widow, regardless of what happened to her last husband. Part 4. Hallgirth's Second Marriage. See, you know, I told you someone else would be willing to marry her. I know. Uh, But we shouldn't make the mistake of conflating these two marriages. This is a very different situation. Certainly it is. So, Holgerth has been back living with her father for a long while when a man named Glum Olifson comes calling. And he's brought a character reference in the form of his brother, the law speaker Thorin Ragi's brother. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's come to propose marriage to Holgerth. Except, of course, he doesn't propose to her. He speaks to Hoskeld and Hrut about the match instead. 
You should know better that. That's the way yeah. these things are usually done. But hasn't Glum learned anything from the story of Holgerth's first marriage? Well, Hoskuld and Hrut definitely have. They send for Holgerth, and when they do, Glum launches into a speech. Yeah. Now, it's worth giving Glum's proposal in its entirety. All right. My brother Thurarin and I have had some words with your father about a contract by which I would marry you, provided it is your wish as well as theirs. There you go. You must now tell us, since you are a woman with a mind of your own, whether this matches at all to your liking. If you have no heart for a marriage contract with me, we will say no more about it. Now, that is a remarkable statement for several reasons. Well, I mean, first of all, the author's going out of his way to show how complete the turnaround from the first marriage is. Yeah, and, but it's more noteworthy for how completely it captures the later Christian teaching about consent and marriage, mm-hmm. right? It even pushes beyond that into an ideal of consent. Mm-hmm. In the next few lines, it becomes obvious that Holgerth isn't just being asked to consent to the marriage. She's being given veto power over every point of the marriage contract. Mm-hmm. She likes Gloom's approach and thinks he's worthy of a match for her. And so, obviously, she agrees to this marriage as it's been arranged. Ah, young love. You know, scoff if you want, but it works. The couple are married at Hoskold's place sometime later, and things are nice. Right. Uh, but there's still a problem looking around in the background. Holgerth's foster father, Thjostolf. Well, actually, he's not so much lurking in the background as he is stomping around the wedding reception, <laughs> hefting his axe, and grinning menacingly at people. See, this is why it's important to really think about your guest list. Yeah, I mean, the remarkable thing is that we're told no one took any notice of him. <laughs> I mean, the man is wielding an axe he used to kill Hogarth's first husband and acting like a maniac, smiling at everyone. It's enough to make you wonder what it would take to get people's attention at an Icelandic wedding. Well, (laughs) um, a serious historicist answer to that question is that aberrant or mentally disturbed behavior was probably much more familiar and common in the lives of medieval people than it is today. Well, in this case, I don't think historical context is necessary. No, I agree. Uh, The point here is literary. The specter yeah. of Holgerth's past stalks this marriage. And Fjolstolf yes, is just a slightly clownish avatar of that past. Clownish. Mm-hmm. He's actually the guy who killed her first husband. I mean, this is not clownish. The threat is real. Well, and yet everyone's ignoring it. Uh, and in any case, Fjolstolf is most definitely not invited to move in with the newlyweds. No. Uh, Hrut advises the, that a condition of the marriage be that Fjolstolf be kept away from Gloom entirely. Like, don't come well, anywhere near him. That's good advice. It is. So, you know, they once they've settled down on Glum's farm, the married couple's happy enough together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a daughter named Thorgird, and they raise her on a farm. Aw. Well, this is turning out to be surprisingly dull for all of marriage. Well, you know, you have to know that this isn't going to last very long. <laughs> While Holgerth and Glum are raising young Thorgird, Theostolf is still living with Hoskold, who tries to ignore him. But uh, Theostolf Everyone becomes keeps trying more... that. It doesn't work. Yeah. But Theostolf does become more difficult over time and eventually beats one of Holskold's servants. Mm-hmm. He's sent away and, and, of course, he then turns up at Holgerth's door. Okay, yeah, but this isn't the same situation at all. This time, Holgerth asks Gloom if Theostolf can stay with him and even says that she'll understand if he says no. Well, sure, but Holgerth twines her arms around Gloom's neck when she asks. Mm. And this is a pretty typical saga code for a woman using seductive wiles to manipulate a man into the answer she wants. And it also works in modern times. Uh, all right, but Gloom's a grown man. I mean, this is still a choice. Oh, and incidentally, Theostolf did kill her first husband. Uh, Gloom sending him away would just be good sense. I mean, come on. Uh, fair enough. Uh But nevertheless, all he says is, I'll grant your request, but I tell you this. If he starts any trouble, he must leave at once. (laughs) Oh, Glum, you poor fool. You even sound a little bit like Goofy. Hang on. 
He's not dead yet. No, but it won't be long now. Come on. <laughs> wow. To no one's surprise, Thjolstov is a terrible house guest and mm. there's all sorts of trouble. Holgerth doesn't support him in his troublemaking, but uh, you know, I guess that suggests that she's actually content with her life with Gloom and Thorgird, but why did yeah. she invite well, this guy? Or she's decided that Thjolstov is just unstable and she doesn't like his behavior either. Well, either way, Gloom and Thjolstov inevitably have a confrontation when Gloom asks Thjolstov to help round up some sheep. When Gloom then tells Holgerth that Thjolstov has to leave, she argues with him, tempers flare, and after an argument, Gloom strikes Holgerth, which you can't Again? See. I told you this wasn't going to end well. Holgerth <sighs> is genuinely upset this time, and she's crying when Thjolstov finds her. Uh-oh. And Thjolstov says to her, You've been badly treated, but this won't happen again. But this isn't Holgerth's first marriage. She chose Glum, or at least agreed to his proposal, mm-hmm. and she's determined that nothing should happen, or at least not right away. But when she tells Thjostolf, you are not to take revenge for this, or have anything to do with what goes on between us. He just walks away grinning. Uh-huh. And remember, we said before that grinning and laughter rarely bode well in the saga, and this is a great case of that. Yeah. Personally, I have always wondered about the hidden meaning of what Holgerth says in that moment. What do you mean? Well, that phrasing, you are not to take revenge for this. Hmm. Listeners who've read this saga already know that Holgerth is perfectly capable of taking her own revenge if she wants to, but she prefers to choose her own time for it. It just makes me wonder what she had in mind for Gloom if Thjostolf hadn't run off after him. Ah, but while you're creating barely plausible what-ifs, John, Thjostolf (laughs) has gone off with Gloom. (laughs) And once they're alone, they start insulting one another, which, you know... It's understandable. Mm-hmm. And eventually they attack and Thjostolf hacks into Gloom's shoulder with his axe. Gloom is still clinging to Thjostolf with his good arm, but he's too badly wounded and dies before he can hurt Thjostolf. Yeah, that's a grim scene. Uh, Gloom is. slowly slipping into death while gripping at Thjostolf. And then Thjostolf loots the corpse, <laughs> stealing a gold bracelet from Gloom before covering the body in rocks. It's awful. Yeah, given his behavior up to now, I mean, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. But Thjostolf's not a nice man. I know he's not, but we're in, like, snidely whiplash territory now. Snidely who? What? 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 Did you think you could tune your radio to a slightly less dated reference than snidely whiplash? I like snidely. We're talking about a 750-year-old saga. I can't make a reference to the 60s. All right, uh, Bullwinkle. <laughs> Let's get back to the saga. Uh, Thjostolf returns to Holgerth, who questions him about his bloody axe. Thjostolf mm. then says... I don't know how you'll take this, but uh, I must tell you of the slaying of Gloom. Mm, and Holgerth says, mm, you didn't sit this game out. And she <laughs>, laughs. That's a, that's a notable witticism right there. <laughs> he, he replies, what advice do you have for me now? Go to my father's brother, Hrut, and let him take care of you. See, that that is an ambiguous statement. It's beautifully yes, it ambiguous. Is. Uh, fortunately, Thjostolf's not great at nuance, so he no. does what she says. Now, I know we're heading to an important moment, but there's another weird bit of that scene that I don't want to skip over. Mm-hmm. Thjostolf gives the gold bracelet he stole from Gloom's corpse to Holgerth. Yeah, I've, I've wondered about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, is that meant as a sign to her that Gloom's dead? Or is he is he actually trying to buy her off with a slaying mm-hmm. settlement paid with gold stolen from the murder victim? I guess both are possible. I, I think probably not paying off the killing since we've already been told Thjostolf never pays for people he kills. Sure. Or, or he might not be sure of the wisdom of what he's done, so he's trying to suggest that she's complicit in Gloom's death. I mean, that's possible, too. 
But anyway, I, I distracted us. So Theostolf mm. rides to Hrut's house with a bloody axe. Well, I mean, I hope he's cleaned the axe by now. Nah, you know, I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> <laughs> when Hrut comes out of his house, Theostolf says, I-, I must tell you of the slaying of Gloom. Who did it? Well, I killed him, of course. <laughs> Why did you ride here? Holgerth sent me to you. Then she was not the cause of it, said Hrut. And he draws his sword. Thank you. Thank Ugh. you. Okay, our lousy performance notwithstanding, that is a fantastic and deeply satisfying moment. It is, and the fight that follows is short and brutal, with Hrut hacking away at Theostolf and finally bearing his sword in Theostolf's head. Ugh. And that was all set up by Holgerth covering up her feelings and sending Theostolf to die. Mm-hmm. Brilliant yep. stuff. Yep. Now, her ability to keep control of herself in that situation is impressive. Mm-hmm. That cold self-control is one of her defining characteristics and it earns it, her all those uh those those uh those descriptors right um and it makes her a really compelling character to me a mm-hmm. lot of what she does and the way she acts wouldn't be especially remarkable in a male figure in the sagas but she's always got people around her a little off guard because of her mix of personality traits well and as we'll discuss in the next episode the complexity of the women in Yal saga is one of mm-hmm. the hallmarks of this one uh, and Holgerth is certainly at the front of that discussion yeah. And, and we're not done with her yet. No. Uh, but for now, there's not much left to say. Uh, Gloom's brother Thorarin visits Hoskull to ask for compensation for Gloom's death. But Hoskull points out, I think pretty reasonably, that he had nothing to do with the killing and that Hrut has already killed Theostolf in revenge for the mm-hmm. death. But the brothers do give Thorarin gifts to compensate him for his grief in his travels, which is a careful bit of social grace. Uh, right. They're, they're not admitting any wrongdoing, but they want mm-hmm. to acknowledge that Thorarin's loss is significant. Right. So, actually, that wraps up the first section of the saga. Uh, wow. Holgerth and Thorarin exchange farms, and everyone's life calms down for a little while. But even while one part of the story is reaching a conclusion, there's news on the horizon. Morth Fiddle, Hrut's former father-in-law, has died of an illness, and Hrut's ex-wife Un has fallen on hard times. And she has a plan to get the money from Hrut that he refused to return her father. And so she calls on her cousin, Gunnar Hamunderson, mm. and Gunnar's friend Njal, and they are going to come up with a plan to get her money back. Right. Uh, and that's where we'll leave it for now. Uh, we'll be back soon with the second section of Njal's saga. But in the meantime, let us know what you think of Hrut's adventures in Norway and Hrut and Holger's misadventures in matrimony. And... And what? Well, remember to tell them how to talk to us. Oh, all right. Uh, so you can contact us through Twitter, where we're at SagaThingPod, or on Facebook, where we're SagaThingPodcast. And you can also visit our blog at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can leave an intricately carved stamp in a letterbox in the woods and send us directions on how to find it. And uh, remember to send us pictures of yourself uh, and the saga-related stuff you found for our Statues and Monuments page. Mm. And uh, also go get yourself a t-shirt or a mug at our somewhat less-than-fancy Saga Thing store, which you can find on our website. Less-than-fancy? You're quite a salesman. Oh, you think so? You know, my, 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 my numbers have been down for some reason. And then again, those, those bastards in the front office won't give me the good leads. And how am I going to close if I can't get the good leads, John? Always be closing. Uh, all right, well, that's going to do it for now, I think. We, we're not going to get into a whole mammoth thing. <laughs> As always, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll be back soon with Mjör, Mjör Njal Saga. Mjör? <laughs> with more Njal... Na- <laughs> As always, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be back soon with more Njarl's Saga. Bye for now. What a couple of clowns.
sore. He could barely sit down for a week. 